0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Y'all sound good. How's everybody doing? Uh, my name's Jake. I'm your pastor. If you didn't know, uh, this is Church of the King. If you didn't know, and we are studying the Book of Romans. If you didn't know, and uh, it's been a while. It feels like it has. We're pretty deep in the Book of Romans. And so we're going to dive back into it. Now, Romans, of course, is one of the most important books ever written. It's one of the most challenging books ever written. It's also one of the most foundational books ever written. And where we're at in Romans is we started by discussing what's wrong with the world, which is us. We are. We're what's wrong with the world because of sin, So sin is what's wrong with the world. And we've learned God's solution, which is Jesus. The whole world is in rebellion against God, and we need to be reconciled to God. We need to be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God the Father, and restored to life so that we can live lives that are pleasing to God. While we were his enemies, Jesus made all that possible by coming, living a perfect sinless life, dying on a cross, being resurrected from the dead. And now He offers us His life for ours. He takes our sin, we get His righteousness. He takes our punishment, we get His blessing. If we come to Him by faith and are adopted into His family, God becomes our Father. And our goal is to live lives of obedience to Him in the full assurance of the love that He has for us in Jesus. Now, in Romans, we're answering uh, some pretty big, deep theological questions about how exactly that all came to be. And that's where we've been the last month or so. How is it exactly that we become reconciled in our relationship to God the Father? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for our family and friends and for those who don't believe? What does it mean for our community? Part of the difficulty we hit up against was who, who chooses? Who chooses? Because it sounds like we can't choose God. We would never choose God on our own. We would never seek for God. How can we be reconciled to God if we're not going to do that, if we're just rebels? And Paul says, that's right. You are rebels. You're going your own way. You didn't choose God. He chose you. You didn't seek after God. He sought after you. And it's called predestination. So then what? Is, it, is that it? If God does the choosing, then what about the people who don't know Him? What are we supposed to do? Why bother? Why pray? Why preach? Why evangelize? Why talk to people about Jesus in the first place? And that's where we're at in our discussion of Romans. Okay, so we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 10 verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, Look, It's not for us to decide who believes. That's for God and that's a secret. But the beautiful thing is that God loves to work in us and with us and through us. Just like any good dad likes to work with his kids. Does God need us? No. God doesn't need us. Does God need to listen to us? No, he doesn't. But God is a good father, so he does listen to us, and he does care, and he does work with us, and he does work through us. When I graduated college and got married, I started my pastoral training, and I took a job in uh, Indianapolis as a commercial painter where I was commuting up, and my boss at the time operated out of his house. And so we'd often meet at his house, like in the morning, together to go to the job site together or I would go up there to pick up supplies and things from his house. And uh, when I would show up at his house, there would always be something that he was working on with his kids. He had, and his kids were little at the time, they're grown up now, but they were little at the time. He had a tomato garden and it was always a mess. And he had this little shed that was constantly being painted and repainted and repainted and repainted. It was like a canvas for his kids. It wasn't pretty. Now, what would he say? He would always say things like this. Yeah, the tomato garden's looking pretty bad, but I'm not raising tomatoes. I'm raising men. I'm teaching my kids. I'm not painting the shed. The goal is not to make the shed look pretty. The goal is to work with my sons. Teach them a trade, teach them my trade, my craft. Give them a work ethic. As soon as they were big enough to carry paint cans, they'd help load up paint cans. As soon as they were big enough to go with them to a job site, they would go with them to job sites. Why? Did he need them to do those things? Did he need that work from them? Wouldn't it have been much more efficient if he had just done the tomato garden himself? if he didn't have his seven-year-old carrying around gallon paint buckets, yeah, it would have been much more efficient, but that wasn't the point. He's just a good dad, right? Good dads love to include kids in their work. God's a good father. He loves to include us in his work. And that's why we pray, because good fathers love to listen to their kids and hear their prayers. And that's why we preach, because God works in us and with us and through us. And He especially works through the word as it is preached. So when we learn about how God works in people's hearts, that He's sovereign, that He's the one that turns the heart, it's not like all the gears grind and everything comes to a halt. That's just God telling us how He works. We don't have to start questioning anything. We don't have to start asking the question, why bother? We don't have God's eternal perspective. That's okay, we don't need it. We don't need a book that says, this is who he has chosen, this is who he has not chosen. Only do these or do nothing and just let, no, God is good, God loves us, God uses us. And so we never try to operate in this life from God's perspective. It's helpful to know it because it humbles us. It humbles our hearts. And it lets us know that Actually, when it comes to how people respond to the message of the gospel, it's not, it's not on us. We've not failed if we've not persuaded somebody, if we've done our best to be faithful. People are rebels by nature, and it's God who has to change the heart. And it's just beautiful that he includes us in some of the work of changing some of the hearts. So we don't try to operate from God's perspective, we just operate with the perspective he's given us. He has given us people to love and to care for. And our job is to go and love and care for them and trust that the people that he puts us in contact with are people he means to be loved and cared for by us. And many of them he means to draw to himself. From our perspective, there's basically, as it's laid out here, a four-step process. First, someone is sent or called to preach. Second, someone hears. Third, the person who hears believes. Fourth, the person who believes calls on the name of the Lord and is saved. Okay? And they are. Remember where we ended last time, if you can remember that far back, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's verse 13. And then we pick up in 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, there's the call. And it springs from faith, from belief. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Can't believe what you haven't heard. How are they to hear without someone preaching? You can't hear without someone preaching, right? Someone's got to be talking for you to hear. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? There's no preaching without a preacher. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So it all begins with God sending a preacher. Uh, how many of you know somebody who's especially good or gifted at evangelism, at talking to people who don't know Jesus? You know people that way? Uh, people who are just good at introducing people to Jesus. There are different ways we can preach. But the goal really is just that, it's to introduce people To Jesus and to share the good news of what Jesus has done. Some people are really good at this in a one-on-one type of setting. Some people are good at it in a small group type of setting. And some people are really good at talking to strangers and getting to spiritual matters quickly. Have you ever known somebody that's actually really good and natural at having a conversation with like a barista or something and just can naturally find their way into spiritual matters? There's the kind of person who does that sort of thing and feels really natural because it's just a gift. And there's another kind of person that feels they should do that sort of thing and it feels really unnatural and it's not really their gift. Some people are just good networkers and connectors. They love to make introductions that they sense will be mutually beneficial. How many of you were introduced to the person you are now married to by somebody like that? Yeah? Couple, so some of them, maybe just Meredith. salsers <laughs> the right? There's a matchmaker somewhere along the line sometimes, right? Hey, I see you, I see you. You two should get to know each other. I'll just make that connection and see what happens. We're not all the same, but we should all want to introduce people to Jesus, right? We should use the gifts and opportunities that God has given us. So what are the ways that our evangelism goes wrong? There are some people, and maybe this is some of you, who want to do their introduction to Jesus without any words. You know that old saying that people say, uh, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words? It's garbage. I just want you to know that. Now, there's something good in it, right? What's the good in it? Well, we want our life to be adorned by the gospel, we want to live what we preach, we want there to be something different about us, we want people to sense that we're the types of people who have been with Jesus. We want to have joy, we want to have hope, we want to have a strength that's not our own, and we don't want to be just all talk, right? That kind of hypocrite who's all talk is disgusting. Some of you know people who have spent their whole lives proclaiming Jesus with their lips while denying Him with their words. The world doesn't need more of that. But on the other hand, there's another type of hypocrite, and that hypocrite is the kind that uses what they call lifestyle evangelism to hide the fact that they just don't really love people enough to talk to them about Jesus and take some personal risk on themselves, the risk of being rejected. That's a different kind of hypocrite, but it's still hypocrisy. The gospel is a message. It's good news. News is something that has to be shared, spoken of, talked about. You can't preach it without words, and you can't preach it without the kinds of words that can get you in trouble. It takes some risk because you have to say words like repentance and sin. Just like Paul does when he begins to explain the gospel in the beginning of Romans. If you're going to introduce people to Jesus and what he's done, you're going to have to take risks. People need to hear those things, and they need to hear it in order to believe, and they can't believe unless they've heard. They need to agree with what God says. They need to agree that the problem with the world is sin, that the problem with themselves is their own sin and rebellion, the problem with me is my own sin and rebellion. We, no one is righteous, I am not righteous. We need a righteousness, they need a righteousness that's not their own, and they need to believe that Jesus came to take their sin and give them his righteousness and change their lives. And they need to want that, and they need to call on him. They need to call on him to save them from their sins. And that's gonna come with some sacrifices. It's gonna come with some surrender, a submission of our lives to Jesus. Some of you here have heard about Jesus your whole lives. You know some things about him. You more or less agree that they're probably true. But maybe you've never actually called on him to save you from your sins and submitted your life to him. You actually have to do that. Kids, you need to do that. You need to own Jesus for yourself. You need to call on him to save you. You need to trust in him to forgive you. You need to trust him to free you from the power of sin in your life and you need to trust him to lead and guide you through life as your king, as your savior, as your Lord. You need to do that and you need to not put it off. Most of us are here because Jesus has changed our lives and we're not perfect. We're still figuring things out. We're figuring out how to grow and deal with our own sins and the sins of others against us. Figure out how to live together and love one another and help one another. But we're here because Jesus has actually changed us. Because Jesus is actually in the process of changing us. And because we're all committed to following him together. And you're being called right now to be part of that. You're always, every Sunday, being called to be part of that and to renew your commitment to be a part of that to repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. That's why we confess our sins together every Sunday. Because, man, we go astray. We need to be renewed in our commitment. Okay, how about who is sent? Each of us is sent in some way, right? We all know Jesus. We all know that Jesus has placed us in some corner of the world to bear witness to him where he's called us to be salt and light. To say it and to show it. Or show it and say it, however you want to put it. And then there are some people who are then especially qualified to go out and to actually preach. In new places even. Pastors, elders, missionaries. People we send into hard places. Christianity is a missionary religion. Paul was the greatest missionary the world's ever known. The book of Romans is actually a missionary letter. It's a missionary support letter. The whole reason is that it exists is not so that we could have a theological treatise that really opens up and explains the gospel. The reason it exists, I mean, that, that's, that's actually incidental. Paul wrote this book because he wanted to go to Spain to preach the gospel where the gospel had never been preached before. And he'd never been to Rome, but he knew he had to go through Rome to get to Spain. And then he knew there was a good church there. And so he's like, I need to get to Rome so that Rome can maybe help send me to Spain, but they don't know me and there's a lot of rumors out there and I don't know that they trust me. So I'm just going to like write a little letter that explains the gospel I preached to them as an appeal to them to say, oh, yeah, we can get behind this guy and send him on. And then he wrote the greatest theological treaties ever made in the process of saying, hey, would you like help support me and send me on my journey? And that's how it came to be. And there's a lesson in that. Theology is best worked out in the context of the mission by people who are committed to obeying Jesus and fulfilling the mission. Theology that's worked out in the context of the mission is always more potent than theology that's worked out in ivory towers. You all know and have heard of a guy named John Calvin, right? Do you know his story? John Calvin was on his way to go. He wanted to go and he felt like God had called him to write, to build up the church. And he was a a lawyer. He was academically minded. He came to faith. He felt like he needed to use all those gifts to write and write and write and write and write. And he's on his way and he meets this guy and this guy is like, you're wrong. You're right, but you're wrong. Actually, you need to go to Geneva and become a pastor. And may God curse you in all of your writing unless you do that. (laughs) And Calvin believed him and was afraid. And he went to Geneva to become a pastor. And then he became one of the most prolific and helpful writers in the history of the church because he first became a pastor. And all of his writing everything he did was shaped by his mission to help and deal with actual people and care for actual people. The real question was, how could he write anything that was helpful unless he was immersed in ministry? Paul set that example. He set that standard. Trust men who are in the trenches. Okay, that's great. Some of us are pastors and missionaries. It's the job of churches to support those on the front lines doing the work of building God's kingdom. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted prayer. He also wanted financial support. That was part of it. He wanted to be free financially to do the work God had called him to do to get to Spain. was going to cost money. So he wanted that church to pray for him, support him, provision him, set him on his way so he had the freedom to go farther and do more. But then there's the question of you. Where have you been sent? Who have you been sent to? Who are the people that God has called you to love and care for? And are you faithful to love and care for those people and introduce them to Jesus? Jake, I don't know how to talk to people. Okay? Can you ask somebody how you can pray for them? Baby steps. Um, on one of my son's baseball teams, uh, one of the dads is involved in FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he has uh, made a habit when he's there to go ask the coaches on both teams of every game if uh, he can pray with all the kids on the field after the game. And you know what? I don't think anybody's ever said no. So they just, at the end of each baseball game, there's a huddle right on the pitcher's mound of both teams, all the kids on both teams and the coaches praying. Most people aren't gonna reject being prayed for and they don't even know how to say no. It's a way to talk to people. It's a way to just take a baby step. Most people won't mind you praying for them. That's a way to introduce them to the idea that I'm a Christian, I care about spiritual things, and you can talk to me about spiritual things. Invite them to church, invite them to Bible study, see what doors God's open, what, what doors God opens. Can't happen unless you take a step. They can't hear unless they're told. Okay, so let's keep going, because that opens the next question. But I ask, have they not heard? And who is the they that they're talking about here? That he's talking about here? It's Israel, specifically the children of Abraham, right? That's the real problem that we've been trying to address in Romans 9 and 10. What about people who aren't saved, especially what about the Jews? What about the children of Abraham? So he's like, okay, but let's talk about Israel. Have they not heard? Indeed they have for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked that Israel not understand. For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So here's what's going on. God's word is powerful. It is what God uses to change people. That's why we preach. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we plant churches. It's through the preaching of the word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. We know that. We believe that. We trust that. That's why we work. We work with hope that God will do great things through the preaching of the word as people hear it. And so then comes the next objection. Well, didn't they hear it? Actually, he's saying that God loves to work through the preaching of the word. That's the goal. That's the mission. He puts people in contact with preachers so that they can hear and believe. Like, didn't, didn't they hear it? Didn't Jesus go around preaching? Didn't this all start in Jerusalem? Didn't they hear it? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, they heard it. Okay, well, if they heard it, did they not understand it? And this is the answer Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Who's the foolish nation? It's all of us, it's just Gentiles. Unless you're of Jewish background, it's you. We're the foolish nation. We're the young believers. We're the new kids on the block. We're the new guy. We're the ones who are excited and happy to be here. Israel's been there and done that. They've waited and they've suffered and they've hoped and they've prayed for a Messiah. And then he came and he wasn't what they expected. And then all of a sudden, all these pagans who have been out running around doing horrible things, worshiping demons, no regard for God's law, they now all of a sudden have a seat at the table. They're all just welcomed in, forgiven. No problem. Israel's been under the discipline of of God and God's law for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands of years. And then Jesus shows up and, let's just welcome in all the pagans. Everybody can come in. Forgiveness is going to happen. They can all be forgiven. They can all be adopted. They can all have a seat at the table. Full inheritance. Let's give him as much as anybody else. And Paul's saying, "Look, Moses told you this was going to happen. God was going to open the doors of salvation, and you would be jealous and angry. And we understand how that happens, right? This is just classic older brother type of situation. Jesus told parables and parables and parables about this sort of thing. We talked about some of them last time I preached." How many of you kids are firstborn? How many of you are firstborn kids? Anybody, okay? You understand how this works in a firstborn born home? You're the guinea pig, your parents are more careful with you with some things. You have to wait until you're 13 to watch the PG-13 movie, but when you turn 13 and get to watch the PG-13 movie, guess who's right beside you? Your stupid 10-year-old brother. You're like, what the heck? My parents are here. In our home growing up, true or false, video games were allowed or not allowed? <laughs> allowed when? When we decided. <laughs> <laughs> but when did you decide? Where was I? You were, you were wrong. <laughs> I was in college or something. I was long gone. Video games were going to rot our mind until I got through college. Um, Got one of them through college, good enough. <laughs> this is just how it works, right? This is just how it works. And I, you know, I, I'm not I'm not picking on my parents. This is like I don't care about video games. This is but this is how it works, right? This is what it is to be a first you're the guinea pig. You have to go through things, right? And then uh the temptation for the older kids is to then be jealous about the privileges that sort of get grandfathered into the younger kids. I and mean, we've all been there and done that. And, and that happens in my family too, Peter feels that, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. It's just how it works. Okay, well, that's sort of what's happening here with Israel. We think, oh, they must have had it easy, oh, it must have been fun, you know, fun for them. I'm the one that suffered. Suffered. Under the oppression of not having video games. I had to play outside with friends, oh no. (laughs) Woe is me. Um, And so that's Paul's answer to the, or first answer to the question, did the Jews understand? Um, Well, they're angry and jealous. If they're angry and jealous, it's because, it's because they understand. understood. They saw what was happening. They saw what God was doing. They just resented it. They resented his generosity. They resented his open-heartedness and freedom to the younger brothers. Moses said that would happen. It was prophesied that God would make them jealous and angry because of a bunch of idiot Gentiles And if you're not descended from Abraham, that's you. You're the one who's late to the party. It doesn't matter. You get the whole party. You get the full inheritance. You get everything. And Israel's the older brother who's jealous and angry. You and I are the people that Isaiah talked about. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's us. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This can happen to us, too. Uh, Sometimes if you've grown up with a godly heritage or in a godly family, you get comfortable. You take God for granted. If you've been a Christian for long enough, you can find yourself taking for granted all the good things God has done for you in your life. This is one of the ways that Satan attacks the people of God. Over enough time, as a believer, you accumulate pain and suffering and adversity and setbacks and failures and problems. If you're not careful, you can be tricked into fixating on all of those things, remembering and thinking about those things, and forgetting the simple basic truths of the gospel, like forgiveness, like freedom from the guilt of sin. You can forget how relieved you were the first time you felt that weight of sin lifted off of your shoulders. And you can regret the life you left behind to take up your cross and follow Jesus, you can forget the growth that God has given you and the freedom from the hold that sin has had on your life. You can forget how far God has brought you or you can fail to see it and you can remember the pain and the trauma and the hurt and the wounds that you endured along the way instead. Or the wounds that in the deep past and you can resent what's still not healed, what's not changed, how much farther you have to go instead of cultivating gratitude for how far God's brought you. You can forget the promise of what lies ahead for you. The real Christian life is not a life of looking backward, it's a life of looking forward. Which is not to say we don't have to understand and deal with things in our past, sins we've committed, sins that have been committed against us in order to move forward. It's just to say that when we look back, what we should be cultivating is gratitude. Not counting grieves and cultivating bitterness. Bitterness. And when we look forward, it should be with hope, not fear or anxiety or resentment about the struggles to come. For the Christian, the future is a future of grace, of forgiveness and power and freedom, culminating in the day when we're finally united with Jesus. The Christian life is a life of hope and joy and peace in the midst of sorrow and pain and work and suffering. when we forget that, we trounce on the grace of God. And then our hearts grow cold to those who are new to it, to those who are coming alive and awake, or to those who have never experienced it, to those who don't know Jesus. What would I call them to? To enter into my pain and misery? When someone shows up then and they're blown away by the good news of the gospel and they're in tears because they learn they can be forgiven for all their deepest, darkest secrets, then your temptation is to turn a side eye and say, eh, you'll get over it. Just wait. And what we become is jealous and angry because we feel like God has come up short in his promises to us and sold us a bunch of false hope What we've actually done is cultivated our bitterness and our resentment instead of gratitude over what he's done. Meanwhile, these new converts are over here being freed from sin and addiction and they're running around on cloud nine like Tiny Tim saying, God bless us, everyone. And just resent it. And we wanna say, yeah, I sought God and I feel kind of shut out. I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I feel like I hit a wall. But that's not what God says. God says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The truth is God and his promises are true and available. And he holds his hands out ready to bless anyone and everyone who would come to him. Problem is we don't want to come to him. We don't want to receive his blessings. We're disobedient and contrary. Whereas the New American Standard puts it obstinate. Are you obstinate in your sin, in your rebellion, in your hardness of heart? Maybe the better question is where? Where are you obstinate? Where are you stubborn? Where do you dig your heels in and rebel against God? Where has he been holding out his hands to you while you have refused to come? It will usually be the places where you have suffered most deeply—that's the place. That's the that's the fertilizer for bitterness, if we let it be. Have you suffered somewhere for being faithful? What happens when you're on the bleeding edge of uh, faithful? This sort of thing has happened to. Um, us or to people in our circles multiple times, where uh, several years back, there was this whole uh, uh, gay celibate Christian movement, and there was a guy at the top of it named Sam Albury, and Sam was being invited to all these different places to speak, to Louisville, to Moscow, Idaho, to all kinds of places, promoting this gay celibate Christian movement, and uh, uh, we and a handful of other people were like, uh, this isn't gonna go well, guys. Desire matters. The heart matters and there's more to this than just acts of uh, sexual sin. The Bible actually names a sin called effeminacy where it says it's not right for a man to act like a woman. It's a whole package. When you say something like that then and then Everybody's like, oh, well, you guys are ridiculous and stupid and extreme. Fringe lunatics. You flash forward today, and a lot's changed, hasn't it? The lines are clearer. And a bunch of the same people who are separating themselves from us for being too hardline are now like totally based. They get it. It's a temptation to be like, oh, yeah. So when we were saying these same things 10 years ago, it wasn't cool, but now it's cool. And now you think you're more like hardcore or whatever than we are. What's wrong with you people? There's some resentment that can build, some jealousy, some anger. Because you were out there suffering and alone and people caught up. You can get upset about that or you could thank God and figure out how to keep being helpful and faithful to God's people. Have you suffered for being faithful in any number of places? Have you suffered pain? Same story. Suffering, what happens in it, during it, through it, and after it can be the fertilizer for gratitude or the fertilizer for bitterness. Your choice. For Israel, it became fuel for bitterness, anger, and jealousy. But God is a God of open hands. We're the stubborn rebellious ones. We're the ones that don't seek God. God's the one who seeks us. Okay, Jake, but a couple weeks ago you said God picks and chooses. That means some are prepared beforehand for destruction. Yeah, that's true. And our job is to put our hands over our mouths and remember that as much as that is true, each person is responsible for themselves. We're all responsible for our own rebellion, every one of us. And when we face God, we will all be responsible and we'll all have been warned and no one will be sent to hell who will be able to point the finger at God and say, you did this to me. It's not how it works. No, you did it to yourself. This is what you wanted. This is what you chose. And he was there holding out his hands to anyone who would come. And those hands will stay open until the end and they will will stay open until Jesus returns or until you die. But then they will close and they will be closed forever. Death will come, Jesus will return. One way or another, you will answer. But Jake, so you're saying God revealed himself to some people But not to others. He revealed himself to Gentiles, but didn't reveal himself to Israel, to Abraham's descendants. He just passively held out his hands to them, but he actively plucked us out of our sins. Yeah, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. How do we reconcile all those things? We don't. We don't reconcile them. God does, God reconciles them. We shut our mouths and we thank God that he's revealed himself to us when we weren't seeking him. That while we weren't looking for him, he came looking for us. It's called grace. And that's how it is for everyone. Nobody here asked Jesus to die for them. He died on that cross long before you were born. You didn't ask him to do that. He decided that's what he was gonna do. Nobody here asked Jesus to build his church across the whole Western world. He just did it. Happened before you were born. You woke up to it. Nobody here asked for godly Christian grandparents or parents or friends or campus ministry leaders or pastors or pastors' wives or whoever it is that ultimately brought you to him. God set that up. God put those people in your lives. Co workers, bosses. God did that. It was His choice. By His grace, by His mercy. Your choice was rebellion and sin. And if you've gotten over that, if you think you've gotten past it and that you're beyond it, you're wrong. That's everything. Remembering that is how you keep a humble, tender, and contrite heart before a holy God. And that's where sin and anger and bitterness end, and growth and freedom and power and joy and hope begin. And then you go to work, loving other people. Because the feet of those who bring good news are beautiful. In his church, this one is small, it's still figuring itself out, but it's beautiful. We're a family of people committed to each other. Started a new membership class today. We've got baptisms coming up. Most importantly, we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who calls us to be a family to each other, and who sent his Son to die for our sins. And that's what we're coming now to the table to celebrate. This is a table for those who have been reconciled to God who have heard the preaching of the word, who have believed, understood, and called on Jesus to save, and they committed to walking in the way together. They follow Jesus in baptism one way or another. They're in good standing of a Bible-believing church, part of a covenant community, or working towards becoming that. And not living in unrepentant sin or rebellion. Actively living. This is a family meal. This is is the family table. Right? You can be part of a family externally and then your heart can be far from the family and you can be causing chaos. And it's not going to be a pleasant meal. If that's you, repent. Get your heart right with God. Don't come. Don't come until you do. But if you know your sin and know your Savior and are actively dealing with your heart before Him and are trying to walk in fellowship with Him, if you have called on Jesus and believe, it doesn't matter how weak you feel, it doesn't matter how hard it is for you, this table's for you. So come by faith.